Welcome, Sam Piccolotti, your host of MZD Fit and In No Zero Days Life. Coming to you with a new podcast episode today. It's an interesting time of year. Uh, just getting through a couple new sessions. And of course, as we hit the new year, uh, there's so many uh, new resolutions that come into play and people start thinking about fitness and wellness again. So I thought it'd be appropriate to, uh, to bring a special guest on, an expert in that area, and talk about uh, that that field with you guys today. Her name is Dina Griffin. She's a chief fueling officer of a nutrition mechanic, a nutrition coaching company based out of Boulder, Colorado, serves to optimize health and performance of active and athletic individuals worldwide through one-on-one coaching and an online group coaching programs. As a registered dietitian board certified sports dietitian, she blends science-based and evidence-based information or informed strategies along with real life considerations to individualize nutrition plans for each athlete and individual. Her passion areas include working with female athletes and master athletes, as well as supporting individuals who have metabolic conditions or disease. Uh, and uh, you can learn more about her and I would uh, certainly encourage you guys to check out the nutritionmechanic.com. Uh, so welcome to today's guest, Dana Griffin. Thank you, Sam. Awesome. Hey. I know that intro is a little bit of a mouthful. Like, what, what <laughs> is that again? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I know I, I tied up my tongue just once there, but, uh, but really, I think, it's, um, I, I think it's spot on. I think the, the only thing that I would add to there is that uh, uh, your, uh, your friendship and knowledge has, has been really instrumental in in uh, educating me and you've, you've helped me personally. And actually my daughter, who was a, uh, a budding uh, elite junior elite triathlete at one point. So uh, uh, very, very happy and honored to have you as a guest. So thanks for accepting joining. Thank you. I'm always delighted to chat with you, even if it's, you know, about, uh, I can't, you know, it's like the, the silliest things, always a fun conversation with you, but certainly, <laughs> Like you said in your intro, the fitness, wellness, health realms, like right now, that's so on everyone's minds, or it seems like it uh, seems to, you know, with the January timeframe and the new year timeframe seems to peak in our, uh, on our radar. So happy to engage in those topics with you today. Yeah, let's, let's, let's go right there. Um... You know, it's it's one of the things as a uh, you know as a an athlete uh, myself and and a coach and trainer, uh, I see I see people this time of year uh, take on really ambitious uh, goals, sometimes misdirected. I, I I think it's great, right? This 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 time and this opportunity to you know think about the future, plan for the future, you know, get yourself stoked on. On, um, on taking on you know big ambitious goals, but I, I know a lot of people uh, fail. I, I don't remember the statistics. I remember doing an article about it about a year ago or so at this time of year that you know resolutions often fail. And they fail pretty quickly. If you look at the the gym stats, you know they explode in the month of January and then, uh, well, to be honest, <laughs> you know here we are not even mid January and and I couldn't get a reservation at my local gym. Uh, for the last two weeks, and I had no trouble getting in there today. I don't know what that tells us okay. about, about resolutions, but I wanted to talk about resolutions and dieting in particular. You know, um, 
one, one of the things I see people really struggle with and often come to me and, and I certainly point them in your direction, but uh, you know, they're very curious about diets. There's, there's all kinds of information out there. And, and, and then it's, you know, it's a diet de jour. You just don't know uh, what to grab onto. And, and there's so many different ones. Uh, and I think people find themselves take on uh, maybe, maybe two extreme diets and, uh, and are maybe not as well informed and then they don't get the results and they get discouraged. And what I hate to see people struggle with, one of the reasons I've, you know, for myself mentally stayed in this NZD mindset and ethos for 20 some years now is that it keeps me off that roller coaster. And, uh, and I see people do the same thing with diet and nutrition, right? So um, I'm wondering what your, what your thoughts are. And I know you've got a lot of co great content on your, on your webpage and, and your Facebook page as well on, uh, on nutrition and diets, but I'd just like to get your, your opinion or feedback on taking on resolutions and dieting and people that are looking to make changes and body transformations, maybe even lose weight right now. Yeah, gosh, that's, it's a little bit of a loaded subject, but I mean, I'm with you, Sam, that like I support anyone who wants to make positive change in their life, whether that's with respect to physical exercise or nutrition or meditation and all of these things that can impact health positively. But I think uh, with, with marketing and some of the challenges that exist out there, like the five-day challenge, 10-day challenges, is, is good intentions, right? But I think um, a common mistake is that people go for too much too fast and really overlook some of the underpinnings that are key to that long-lasting change. So like in engaging in a certain a dietary pattern, let's say for two weeks. I mean, most people can stick with something, you know, for two weeks time, but it's like, what are all the things that you're doing to uh, really address, you know, behaviors and habits and routines, instead of just looking at the meal plan specifically, right? The, the, the diet, we'll call it, it's probably not addressing all of those other things that we really need to look at for that longer lasting change that we're seeking. Um, so it's like too much, too fast. We're overlooking the nitty gritty details. We're not changing habits like we need to. So at the end of our excitement period or this, you know, January timeframe, it's like, oh, now what? You know, we, we need more time to build that resiliency to, to really improve habits or change the things that we each need to affect that longer lasting change. So, so yeah. that, that, that should begin with, and I don't, I don't maybe, I'm, maybe I'm wrong, but uh, does it normally, or should it begin with some type of a, an assessment on what the current diet consists of or looks like? I mean, I am biased. I will say yes, absolutely. Because that's the other thing. Great, great point there is that sometimes we're targeting the wrong area and it's actually like sleep we need to look at or your stress level or some other thing that we're wanting to ignore. We just don't have the, you know, we have blinders on, we're not seeing the impact. Um, or maybe we don't know, it's just a matter of education. So 
I mean, in my dream world, everyone would do an assessment with an independent, you know, professional of some sort, some health professional. I mean, you know. Yeah, uh, well, do, well, do you mind if I ask, you know, if you, if you don't mind divulging, but if, if, if you were to take on a client like that, who's looking for that transformation, where, where might you begin with that client? So because I'm in the nutrition profession, it is looking through the lens of the day-to-day -day fueling strategies that are being used. But along with that, it's not just what we eat. So because there's so many drivers of food intake. So that could be learning then more about one stress level, um, sleep patterns, where you are in your life, right? Difference between a 25 year old and a 50 and a 75 um, medical history and, and really digging into the goals that you think you have, right? So if it is like a weight loss goal, which is common around this time, it's mm -hmm. understanding where that comes from and what the expectations are, right? Because I'm sure you've seen this, Sam, where like, I just need to lose whatever, you name it, 20 pounds, and then life is good. <laughs> right. It's like, oh, I sure wish it was that way. But it's, you know, there's a lot of psychology and a lot of beliefs around health change. So as much as, you know, I'm not uh, a therapist, but uh, with the work that I do, there's certainly a lot of understanding that needs to be uh, you know, put, put out on the table where, where is all of what you think you want, you know, where does that come from and what do you believe about it? Yeah. Wow, you, you bring up, a, yeah, you bring up a, a great point. I hadn't thought about diet or nutrition in the same realm, but I, you know, I'll often say that happiness doesn't have an address, right? Yeah. So, um, so you know, 20, losing 20 pounds is, is a goal and that, that could be a great goal, right? Especially if you have some underlying health conditions that, you know, that that may be impacting pre-diabetic or whatever it is, but you get to the 20 pounds, they come off and that that's great. You can check the box, ring the bell and, and there's, there's lots of reason for applause, applause, but then what, like, what is your life? Yeah. What does your life look like? What are your behaviors? What's lifestyle benefits of that? And I think, the fulfillment's happening after that, right? Not just getting to that, just to that 20 pounds. And really connecting to what it is, like what what does that do for you? Mm -hmm. I mean, even I, I will say, and, and I don't wanna sell myself short here, but a lot of times we need to retract a bit from those kinds of goals and really like if it is, the expectation that weight loss solves all of these or this this magical number on the scale or percent body fat solves all your problems oftentimes i see that's really not the case yeah. <laughs> but so we have to retract a bit like well actually um you know your energy level is is really what you're hoping to improve so that you can go do the physical feats or you know work on those kinds of things and you associate being thinner or leaner with with that exclusively when in actuality it is building these habits of consistency 
um, fueling the body well, and just, you know, like, like the mantra of what you teach and preach and exude, right? It's like doing something every day and how that all builds together to lead to this whole life process, right? This whole journey. Um, so it's not just an endpoint. I think is what you're kind yeah. of saying. Like when yeah. we reach that number or that thing that we think we need, it's like, well, it's, it's a whole lot more than that, right? It's so much more fluid and dynamic. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Uh, I love that approach. So you're you're looking more deeply and more holistically into uh, into that individual. Try to find out what some of the drivers are and the reasons behind the desire to either lose weight or hit a certain you know body mass index or whatever that objective might be. And if it if that transformation includes, well, I you know because I'd like to start running again or I'd, I'd like to start being active with my kids again or you know whatever that might be uh that 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 needs to be addressed that that's that's really great insight uh and you know no doubt a lot of folks dealing with it right now and and um and looking at you know a variety of different popular dieting uh concepts uh one, one of the things i wanted to ask you about and, and i uh is fasting or intermittent fasting get your feedback on it and uh and I've fasted before. I used to go through a, an annual cycle, uh, kind of as a cleanse, more of a cleanse than a fast. And, and it's interesting because I, was, you know, I went to church yesterday and, and uh, the, one of the subjects was fasting. They're talking about fasting um, from a spiritual perspective. And, and, and really that's what a fast in, 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 in many asset aspects provides, right? It's the sustainment from, from something. And, and, uh, you know, whether that be, you know, avoiding sugar or avoiding food altogether, that kind of thing. But on the topic of, of intermittent fasting for, uh, you know, to induce a metabolic response, like um, what, what are your thoughts about uh, incorporating intermittent fasting into, into a diet plan? Ooh, another good one, Sam. <laughs> I think it's, it's still first understanding what are the expectations like what is the context of the person mm -hmm. um beliefs around what fasting does right because we've got fasting's been around for thousands of years right in the yes. religious context especially uh but if we're talking about someone who has a disease state okay so there's another context and then we've got the athlete who is interested in doing, incorporating some fasting, right? Whether that's um, longer fasts from day to day or if it's fasted workouts. So I think what I'm trying to say here, not dancing around the question yet, but <laughs> is really understanding what is the goal or what do you think the goal is? Well, let me, let me take it to two places and then see. Yeah, if, that's helpful. If, yeah, so um, on the on the topic of intermittent fasting for uh, for for metabolic change and and um, and, and maybe even uh, to ward off or address inflammation, is that you know is it is it a respectable approach for for those two uh, considerations, reducing inflammation or or you know, yeah, increasing metabolic. Well, definitely the metabolic adaptation. We do have 
science to support that, yeah. that, you know, living in a fasted state or exercising in a fasted state does drive these different um, signaling pathways. And there's a whole bunch of stuff going on when we, depending on the, the length of the fast, right? Like our overnight fast, just sleeping, um, there's a little bit of house cleaning going on in the body and some things happening in the gut, you know, and in the brain. Um, but if we're talking about very long fast, that's a whole other ball game. Yeah. Well, let's but, the, yeah, so yeah like the, the intermittent, yeah, for the intermittent uh, portion of an athlete, I mean, cause you, you see common fast of what, like uh, 18 hours or 16 hour yeah. kind of time frames. Um, do you mind talking about what, what, you know, what, whether they're benefits or not, or, you know, your opinion, but uh, what happens during those cycles from a, a metabolic standpoint and where the advantages, if there are some, might exist? Let's see. So there's a few changes that occur. So if we put, let's use the context of a, a should we do the fasted workout, Sam, or do you want to like sure. that kind of context? Yeah, exactly. So somebody's yeah. thinking about fasting, you know, prior to a workout. Mm -hmm. So one advantage to that is that you are forcing the body to adapt to this change in fueling state. Stop me if any of this, like you want to expand on or me have a different yeah. explanation. No, go ahead into the week. Um, yeah. So like if you, let's say you go to bed at nine, you know, you wake up at six or whatever, do a fasted workout um, <clears throat> or just that, let's say 12 to 14 hour time frame. Okay. And then you have some exercise uh, in, within that time frame with no food, maybe there's some water, but no other calories coming in. Your body is being forced to adapt to this low fuel state or this low carbohydrate state. So as a result of that, there are some changes that go on, especially over time with repeated fasted sessions. And depending on the exercise programming that's put in place, you know, as a whole, um, the body can adapt to that low fuel availability state and therefore use its internal fuels differently. Whereas if we had eaten prior to the workout, let's say a banana or a gel or something, you know, carbohydrate wise, um, carbohydrate containing, the body doesn't make those same adaptations or at least not at that same rate. Um, so there are some other changes going on at a cellular level, building the mitochondria, the density of those mitochondria, the, the, the rate at which they oxidize fats, um, what does that mean for us? It means that if we're an endurance athlete, especially that we tend to burn fat or oxidize fat as a fuel source more efficiently. Um, however, I think here's the caveat in case anyone's like, so is this something I should do? Yeah. I think this is where we need to put everyone in their own context. Um, so what we know from the literature, at least the scientific literature, there's you know a little bit more coming to light that that men versus women 
doing fasted workouts or intermittent fasting, men tend to be, at least in the athletic context, males tend to be a bit more resilient. Um, so there's less breakdown, there's less risk for um, some of the negative consequences that can happen from endocrine function, like your thyroid health, adrenal health, some of these other aspects, bone. Yeah. Um, so that would be a is question. That, is that horm hormonally related? It can definitely tie into this whole thing. Yep. Um, you know, so there's some benefits from a metabolic standpoint, but the, the thing that I come back to is, again, what's the expectation? Because there's also this thing where if we, this, this concept here, like, well, if I do fasted workouts, I'm gonna lose weight quicker, right? Because I'm not taking in any calories around my workouts. Um, but there are a couple newer studies or recent studies showing that actually there's, there's little to no difference if we eat, you know, similar amount of calories in the day and we eat, you know, appropriately, that there's no difference in weight loss or weight um, body composition changes. Like it's not a significant difference. Mm. Um, so it would be a, maybe a matter of preference and a matter of considering the context of the individual. Does it make sense to do this from a time perspective? You know, you only have time at 5 a.m. for a workout, so we have to do it fasted. Um, maybe there's an appropriate time of the year to do it, you know, in a, in a base building season cycle. Yeah, that's interesting. So, I mean, it, it, you know, I've seen the articles and I've seen discussions about uh, even utilizing a ketogenic diet and intermittent fasting for endurance athletes and, and how, how they can make those metabolic transformations and, you know, and using fat more effectively. And yeah, you know, it, but is it sustainable? Is it something that I, I don't know? That's a question. Right. Well, and the other thing is, um, you know, we have the, all the other hours in the day to affect our weight loss or our weight maintenance or whatever it is we're trying to achieve. Um, so it's not just that little chunk of the you know, day that we can focus on. It's the whole day we have all these other choices um, with respect to how we put together our foods. And what we're seeing as far as the ketogenic, um, again, it's like, well, what are you looking for? If you want to be a good fat burner, you know, eating, right. eating a ketogenic style dietary pattern can definitely help you oxidize more fat, but that doesn't always equate to being ripped and lean that that is very different. Yeah. Um, like it's, it's kind of correlated, but not, they're not it's not cause and effect that if you are on a ketogenic diet and you, you know, we put you on a metabolic cart and test your fat burning versus carb burning, um, you could still be burning a high amount of fat, oxidizing a high amount of fat, but that doesn't always mean that you're in a weight loss or fat loss mode. I don't know if that makes sense. It does. Um... And, and that's an interesting point, right? Where, 
I mean, if if you if you become proper term or not metabolically more efficient through yeah. that, that process, right? You're oxidizing fat more effectively. Uh, you don't want to be, and if you enter into it and, and it has a weight loss component, you obviously don't want that, that weight loss con contingent to continue. At some point you want to become uh, metabolically efficient and effective in, in what you're doing so you can sustain your activities and your life or whatever. You can't continue to, to lose weight. So what does that look like for an individual that goes into that process and sees that transformation of, uh, you know, metabolic change, um, you know, can they sustain that? How, how do they sustain that, that, that effective fat burning and utilization? Approach? Yes. So part of the goal would then be to become metabolically flexible which the, these concepts, metabolic efficiency and flexibility go together. Yeah. But being metabolically flexible means, we, part of it means that we structure your nutrition to periodize or strategically plan carbohydrates to support training, depending on the kind of training, right? So, if we've got higher intensity sessions or we have longer endurance sessions, there's a time and a place, right? To put in carbohydrate to support that and to recover from that, you know, from yeah. that exercise bout, or maybe, you know, looking at your week or training cycles on those mini or micro level and, and meso level and macro levels. Um, so the goal would be not just for our ketogenic athletes to stay ketogenic because we can risk losing some of that metabolic flexibility, meaning you can't hit high intensities as well. You may struggle a bit with any kind of power that you need to produce. So because you, because you don't have the glycogen storage? That, that yep, and uh, an enzyme in particular can become down-regulated with chronic um, low carb fueling and fasted training, um, maybe even under eating can, can come into play. So we really, if we are gonna do uh, incorporate some fasted training or have um, the keto type plan, we wanna plan that. And I have, you know, I could say a lot more about that too, but we just want to be careful we're not risking health for one, but also performance. And I know you can go on Google and see a ton of reports. Like I've been on keto for three years and I'm rocking everything. Um, there's still the N of one component that we have to consider, right? What kind of athlete are you? And are you really keto? Cause a lot of athletes think they're doing keto and they're not. <laughs> you brought up a term that I, you know, that I, wasn't familiar with it makes a lot of sense and that's a flexibility piece yeah, yeah. flexible and I, and I completely understand that it's like you know through those cycles you, you you're gonna have to you're gonna have to add some flexibility if if, if in fact you you want to be able to sustain and perform uh, you know th throughout your, your training and, and performance periods because uh, as as you 
take on different aspects of your training, there are going to be different demands uh, nutritionally on the body, right? Exactly right. So, I mean, if, if there is someone who is just doing, I don't mean just that it's insignificant, but I, what I wanted to say is someone who's doing uh, like recreational ultra running, not a high performer or long treks in the mountains. Um, there's something to be said for being lower carbohydrate. We, we may not need to be keto, right? Where that's like 80% of your calories come from fat and 5% come from carbohydrate. So we've taught our body to fuel or be less reliant on carbohydrates. So we're good fat burners. We can go out for hours and hours and we don't have to eat much. We don't have to carry much fuel. Our bodies have enough fat stored to burn to, to do the, that low intensity or lower to moderate intensity movement just fine. But if we're looking to do some, some kind of sport that involves power and that ability to generate power quickly, um, or we're trying to be more of a higher performer, right? More competitive. I would say we can move away from strict keto and put in strategic carbohydrate. It is this metabolic efficiency kind of eating, right? So that we can conduct that higher intensity bout. Sure. If you're going, if you're going through a, a you know, muscular endurance phase of your training and, and yeah. you know, working to build that base and they start entering into those, uh, those, those power periods where, yeah. you know, you're, you're trying to increase your power capabilities and strength. Uh, your, your diet and nutritionally has to adjust to, to take on those other loads, to be able to perform in those loads. And I can see where if it's not, especially if you've been in that, uh, in that uh, carbohydrate deficient period of time, I suspect you can, you can end up at a place where you're more prone to injury and you're not going to be able to perform with that, when that power sequence, right? Yeah, that is a risk. One other thing, Sam, that I think is important to say is uh, with the ketogenic style of eating, um, a concern would be that we're not getting in enough calories, period. And that's just because eating in a ketogenic fashion, you know, there's a, there's a better way to do it and a, you know, not so great way to do it. But because it's so filling, eating a high amount of calories from fat um, is so filling that a risk that we see now emerging is that athletes in particular can underfuel, and it's unintentional, but it's just because they're, you know, stuff from eating the avocado and wow. the whatever it is, like yeah. I'm full, but I can't right. eat anymore, yeah. regardless of the carbohydrate aspect. And right. so over time, depending on the kind of athlete or, you know, our pursuits, we can risk, um, we could definitely risk bone injury or some other illness, right? The immune system can be become compromised. Um, again, thyroid function can downregulate. There are some other concerns even with women and reproductive health. Um, so it's it's just something you know a lot of athletes don't want to hear, or look at <laughs> if they're a big fan of eating keto, but it's a risk 
at some point down the road that I would hope to uh, prevent. Yeah. So um, that 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 makes a lot of sense, and and I think it offers great insight for somebody that you know is looking to take on that type of a, a dietary change. In that, uh, you, you you probably need to to understand or work with a professional that uh, make sure that you know, holistically, whatever that longer term goal is, that, that you you've got the right flexibility aligned with whatever that training looks like and those goals look like to get you to that, that phase. I can see from a, uh, uh, you know, from a, a training standpoint, if you end up in that ketogenic, utilizing ketogenic diet like that, having that, that feeling of, of sustainment from, you know, the, the additional fats, but you're, you're lacking on the proteins uh, and, and you're, you're obviously not teed up for recovery as well. You you can you can also risk muscle uh, muscle injury much more uh, you know, likely than you know had had you been consuming uh, you know a, a different type of, of diet. Um, so there there's been a uh, I'm curious you know your feedback and this is probably another you know too general of a question or statement, but uh, you know often it's been recommended that. Uh, from a, an exercise and recovery standpoint that you take in a certain amount of uh, fuel, nutrition, protein, I've even heard, you know, recommended certain amount of grams per body weight within a, within a 30 or 60 minute segment post exercise. And I wonder if you have some insight or if you can offer a little more on that. Yeah, post-exercise nutrition. So- Or fueling. Protein, yeah, fueling the refuel period. Um, yeah, so there are some layers to that. So what kind of exercise did you just complete? Because um, that is a difference, right? And so we each have our own, well, regardless of, of what we're each doing, it's important to think about what it is that you just completed and what, if you are, let's say in a fat loss mode, you're looking for weight loss, we can time recovery nutrition uh, to be like your next meal. Can we, can we put the exercise about, you know, an hour or so before your next meal or 30 minutes so that we time, time and, you know, we're not consuming extra calories, right? We're putting that next we're putting lunch as your recovery nutrition, for example. Um, aside from that, though, uh, for shorter workouts, Sam, you know, the hour or less, maybe hour 15 or less, low, moderate intensity, there's nothing we need to do that's yeah. fancy in terms of carb protein mixes, unless we have another you know, uh, let's say a lifting session coming up in the afternoon or within a couple hours. So we have to think about what kind of workout did you just do? How long was it? How hard was it? How much did it break you down? Maybe was it fasted? When's your next exercise bout and what is it? Um, you know, the caliber of athlete that you are, are we in a 20 week 
or sorry, a 20 hour week of training, or is this like a four hour week of exercise? So some of these things that kind of make the flow chart, you know, the if then else, it gets a little complicated here and lengthy. Um, but to generalize, I would say for those longer workouts, let's say hour and a half, two hours and beyond, um, that may be in that moderate to higher intensity or endurance mm-hmm. type mode. Um, for men versus women, you know, the, the recommendations start to diverge a bit. So men can do pretty well with this 20 to 25 gram amount of protein, but it's not as urgent from a time standpoint for muscle protein repair as it is for women. And this is based, yeah, this is based on, you know, the little bit of research that we do have that there is a difference between female and male, um, the drivers and time sensitivity for muscle protein repair. Women tend to do a little bit better. So we've got this other little branch between women in reproductive years, like pre-menopause years, and women in perimenopause, postmenopause. The women in those peri and postmenopause years tend to do better with that repair rate when we've got around 35, 40 grams of protein within 30 to 60 minutes post-exercise. They do better. They do better with that whole whole pathway of muscle protein repair and synthesis. So if I, just to summarize, if they're in that uh, peri or post-menopausal period of their life and it's it's post-exercise, yeah. You know, that uh, taking in that that uh, the, the protein, uh, 20, 30 grams, whatever it is, for recovery tends to benefit that women in that in that category better than men or, or other individuals. Yeah, in there's more of a need for a higher yeah. protein amount. So it's it's reaching upwards of about 40 grams of protein. 40. For, wow. for peri and postmenopause women. Yeah. Again, it depends on the exercise we just yeah. finished. So let's talk about that. What what type of exercise um, you know would would create a better requirement for that type of protein recovery? Yeah, so that would be more your higher intensity, uh, heavy lifting, you know, hit workouts. Sure. So somebody somebody of that of that age of caliber that just came out of a CrossFit workout uh, yeah. or, or done something in a, you know, in high intensity circuit yeah. class or program, they'd want to pay attention to having that, having that, you know, re- nutritional recovery aspect, right? Yes. Within that 30 to 60 minute window. And I think um, that's interesting because I suspect there are a lot of women who are attempting weight loss at that age and come out of those workouts thinking that they just came out of a, uh, you know, great fat burning session and it would be a good time to skip a meal and, and burn more fat. Totally. Less is more, right? Um, You're spot on, Sam. I mean, it is, and that's part of some of the diet culture we still have in our minds, right? Um, But actually women, 
especially as we get into our 40s and beyond, like it's fueling in and around those workouts that can do so much more for us. And we don't need to diet around that. Like the exercise it itself is a huge driver of energy expenditure, right? And there's a lot of changes going on from a physiological perspective. So if we can fuel for those workouts and recover well, and then we have the whole rest of the day, right? Or the other hours of the day to worry about our, you know, broccoli and all of our veggies and all that other yeah. stuff. Um, that's, so that's really great. Do you, do you, can you point to or do you recommend a certain type of protein intake for that post recovery? Is there certain aspects of the protein that are most critical for, for assimilation of benefit? Yeah, I mean, the, the proteins that have more leucine, that amino acid, branch chain amino acid, um, that leucine piece is the key when we think about the proteins that we're going to choose. Um, so some people will do a whey protein or a, you know, a whey isolate protein just because per weight or per serving, there tends to be more leucine in that whey protein or yogurt or milk, some of these other dairy products. Um, so that's, that's part of this. And I should, should clarify a little bit, like the 40 grams of protein for those masters women, um, you know, we can look at uh, branch chain amino acids to help if for some reason, like, oh, I have no appetite. I cannot eat. I cannot eat a yogurt or, you know, a protein shake or something afterwards. We can come up with some other creations, but it's really looking at the leucine component of the proteins and it tends to be higher in um, animal derived proteins. Not to say plant-based can't work, it's just we have to see what else is in that plant protein because we can risk not having the same absorption rate. Sure, and you want- so We might have to double up a little bit on some of the pea proteins or other plant-based proteins just to get that same amount of leucine. And the leucine for reparative or restorative purposes, right? Exactly, yep. So, so, so let me just ask and so to help people get some perspective because <clears throat> we, you know, we're kind of talking about uh, kind of got under the assumption of supplementation, but let's say, let's say you're, you're looking at a meal and you're, you're charging for 40 grams of, of restorative protein yeah. post exercise. And we take a, we take a product like um, yogurt and you got, you've got a cup of yogurt. What what are you what are you projecting you're going to see in in protein in that cup of yogurt? How many grams? Yeah, yeah, great. If it's if it's like a Greek yogurt or one of the Icelandic yogurts, they tend to be just how they're made. They tend to be closer to about eighteen to twenty grams per cup. Okay. So we may have to add a little bit of something, or we split this forty gram amount into okay, let's do a yogurt. And then a half hour later, you know, do your half turkey sandwich or whatever else. It's if you're not wanting to put a whole bunch of stuff in your yogurt, you know, almonds and 
chia and hemp. Yeah. <laughs> Not loaded up. Yeah. You can set that up. And that I think that offers you know some some great areas for consideration is that uh, you, you know you don't necessarily have to look at at a supplement at a, at no. a whey protein supplement or a, or a plant-based protein supplement and consider that being your only alternative if, if you you'd rather not go down that path and you want to sit uh, but but you do have to, to to pay some attention to what kind of protein and how much protein you might be gaining you know from whatever it is that you know you're consuming at that point i think that's lost on a lot of people i think just the uh the consideration of if, if we were to take an egg for instance, right what five to six grams of protein yeah about egg? six yeah yeah and what's the leucine benefit something like that like in an egg? yeah it's i mean there is some leucine in an egg right it's just not it's not the same so i forget exactly it might be less than a half gram of leucine per egg. So, you know, you, you kind of have to eat three or four eggs to get yeah, that, a that, half your amount, yeah, right? So, a lot of people, you know, struggle with that, you know, with, with paying attention to that or adhering to that concept is, you know, if you're, if you're looking to grab 40 grams of protein and an appropriate leucine uh, um, benefit out of a meal of eggs, you're going to have to eat a lot of eggs. Yeah, to, right. So that's where I think if we just higher level, it's thinking about what kind of workouts are we all doing, time of day, and can we use breakfast and lunch or lunch and dinner or a snack to try, try and help? Like how can that support what it is we need? Mm -hmm. um, and we don't have to do this 40 grams for us masters women. Like we don't have to do that all the time, but it's after very, uh, you know, like quality sessions Sure. and the guys, you know, it's your quality sessions too. It's just that you don't need quite as much 20 to 25 grams, but you don't also have to worry about that timing. So this is where like, there's a lot of individual nature here to piece apart. And that's why I start sweating, Sam, when I'm like, oh no, I'm saying all these general statements. We need to put it in context of who we each are to really optimize what it is we're each looking for. Yeah, that's great. Um, so if you were to, if you were to take on a client like that and, um, and let's say they're, you know, they're recreational uh, individuals and athletes and, you know, one of their, one of their um, goals is to reduce fat and, and yet, you know, they want to still be able to build muscle to be able to, become more active and, and perform better. Um, what are, besides, you know, just some of the conversation and, and the Q&A that you get from their goals and, and expectations, is there some testing or what type of testing would you like to look for if, optimally? If you had somebody who was all in and they wanted to devote themselves to that, what type of testing would you, would you be looking for? Well, it'd be good to do blood testing. I think that is such an inexpensive diagnostic test. And really, that's not going to help me help someone with weight loss specifically, but it can enlighten us as to the general health status, especially if we are looking at someone who's, you know, been around the block for diet, diet 
you know, the different diets out there and we've hopped around a bit. Um, <clears throat> or if we're wanting to do more of a plant-based route and that's their preference, they're wanting to go from omnivorous to more plant-based eating. Um, it's always good to do a blood test just to see what's your starting point right now or where are you on your current, um, you know, this current health span. And then, I mean, so that can show some deficiencies, at least from a micronutrient perspective. It can show, you know, red blood cell health, um, depending on what kind of tests are run. Uh, thyroid function, which is something uh, a lot of athletes have, you know, hypothyroid just from training a lot, maybe not eating enough. Um, so I think a blood test, like if we were to rank them by investment or, or price, that's a, it's one of the more affordable options that shows so much to someone like me. Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a bunch. I mean, if we had like unlimited funds, it's always good to see, um, some of the genetic testing to know whether there's some variants there that can affect nutrient absorption. You know, that's, that's kind of a nice to have. Um, I think, yeah. have you what? done that Sam? Didn't you do some genetic testing a while back or? I, no, I haven't. Uh, it's okay. interesting, you know, I, I've, um, uh, but I can, I can see the, uh, you know, the, the benefits of it. I, I'd always wondered, uh, you know, for, for many years now, actually, that, you know, what impact um, genetics uh, or ethnicity play in, in uh, you know, in nutritional needs, right? Yeah. If, if I can remember many years back reading an article about somebody who had attempted to go, um, you know, into the Arctic and, and live off of a... Uh, an indigenous cultures, you know, high fat diet. And it, it didn't work well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the reason that, you know, those people have uh, retained, you know, fat and uh, their body composition. So uh, does the, is, is there, I would imagine there's some correlation between what you see in, in genetic testing and ethnicity, for instance, if they're coming mm -hmm. from certain regions, right? Yep. Yeah, that's something, you know, we're learning so much more, the more data we get from human beings and being able to track that, that's, it's like another area of science. It's super fascinating. I was just thinking of another test. that's one that I'm using more now is, um, have you heard of the GI map test? No. It's, and there's some other similar companies, but GI map is basically, um, looking uh it's pcr pcr analysis but it's looking at um, a snapshot of the gut microbiome to help us see whether we've got some overgrowth in the small intestine um, to see what the flora look like from in terms of the variety of species and the counts and we can look for h pylori and some of these other pathogens that may actually be causing health issues. Sure. Not all of us have, you know, miserable <laughs> GI distress every day, but some people do have frequent bloating and cramping and like 
constipation or diarrhea. It's like, oh, we can look at all the food that you're eating and start there. Mm -hmm. But if we can do this test, it can show these other um, these other markers for us to target. Does that does that key in or, or give you some insights to uh, you know certain inflammations that might be caused? Uh, you know, from certain foods or dietary habits a person would have? We can get a sense of a few things. If, so if there's some fat malabsorption and, you know, when we talk about poop and, and all those fun things, then I can clue in, uh, you know, what is it you go through or what do you see, even subjectively and then objectively. Um, but then this test will highlight some of um you know, if there's some gluten intolerance or the pancreas isn't putting out enough of its enzymes to digest fat, you know, all of that's elucidated a bit more. So it's super invaluable for those who are having a lot of gut issues or, you know, if you're feeling like um, you're doing everything right from an exercise, sleep, stress, nutrition component, um, but there's something that just doesn't feel right from a body perspective, then this test can, can shine the light on that a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. It, you, you know, it just starts to, uh, it just starts to really reveal uh, how important it is to not, not just make generalizations and what you're attempting or adhere to, you know, subscribe diet, even if that's something that sounds really healthy on the surface, uh, you know, and if you can take advantage of, of somebody with, you know, with your type of insight and skills, uh, how, how much, how much uh, more effective you can be at, at uh, you know, trying to reach those goals. And, but, but I think from a health and performance standpoint, it's, man, it's so critical. I, I, I think about all the individuals that I've met, known, and see that, uh, especially on the endurance athlete side, that are putting themselves through so many levels of stress um, and myself included and taking on, on certain uh, initiatives, you know, fairly blind in, in, in their attempt and, you know, and applying some generalizations to, uh, to diet or fueling uh, in that process, right? Yeah. Uh, where you don't think about the systemic type of impacts that you, you might you know, also encourage or affect uh, from that. You know, none of us want to go to in a process and, and start, uh, you know, seeking a quest of ultra marathons and, and building our endurance capacity and end up with a, a thyroid problem that we, you know, we had planned on, right? I know. And I wish we all had our own crystal balls to know <laughs> like, ooh, if I, if I maintain this path, here's what's going to happen in two years. I mean, that would be amazing if we had that foresight, but unfortunately, you know, we can feel amazing and, and just take on new challenges thinking, well, I'm fine, yeah. but sometimes without this diagnostic testing or just having a third party, like, well, let's just check and make sure everything's yeah. kosher before you keep going, Yeah, you know, then, then that allows that stopgap at least like ooh, we should just change a couple things here and and then let's revisit in six weeks or six months or whatever the time may be um to make sure everything's still yeah steady and, and good makes great sense i wanted to ask you because you mentioned um plant-based diets um you know 
quite quite common, quite popular, and people even supplementing with with plant based proteins. And uh, and I, I've noticed a certain level of intolerance. So I wanted to ask you specifically about soy based protein products. Um, I you know I I don't know if you have an opinion on them, uh, and I guess maybe it depends on the individual to some degree. But I I know there have been uh, there's there's been some really negative feedback and science around soy-based stuff, but what's your, what's your take? Yeah, and are you talking about the supplements or just soy Soy-based foods? Soy-based pro- protein um, uh, supplements, yeah. Okay, yeah, because from a whole food perspective, I'm not quite as nervous. Like if you think of tofu and mm-hmm. edamame and tempeh, those kinds of soy foods can fit for a lot of people and we still have to do that end of one like well let's make sure it's okay for you but for a lot of the supplements like protein powder some of the other um we'll call it foods that have a lot of soy you know soy isolates right um you know there's there's a bit of mixed there's a bit of mixed evidence or research in all of that realm. Um, I usually will advocate for looking at all of the, all of the protein sources in one's day, and then try to understand why we're using a soy supplement as like, especially a soy protein powder. Um, you know, if we're extremely limited, we're not wanting to eat any other animal proteins. Maybe we can't tolerate beans, we, we have a nut allergy, or like there's a long list of reasons, then I can see putting in some quality soy protein supplement. <clears throat> but I want to be careful that it's used in the right amounts and at the right time and not over uh, consumed or abused. But I think there's a there's some, you know, hocus pocus out there that you know, soy protein in and of itself will cause a whole bunch of, of health issues. There, there's some, uh, to be honest, there's a little bit of quackery out there that soy protein is evil. And there are, you know, many other cultures that have used soy protein like tofu forever, but it's this processing of the soy that, that we are talking about. So I just want to be clear, yeah. like soy is not evil, but in certain contexts, in certain processing and, and consumption amounts and whatever else is going on in the diet, it may or may not be appropriate. So that's kind of my general yeah, okay. feel I, there. Yeah, I get it. I don't know if it's a true fact or not. You know, I think back to years, years ago, I read something, I don't know where it was, but um, that in the Japanese culture, uh, they don't even have a word for menopause. I don't know if that's true or not. That's right. Yeah. um, And, you know, and I think I read this in an article in context around, you know, soy in their diet. So many, many years ago when I I first started, you know, really paying attention to, you know, nutrition and supplementation, that sort of thing. uh, I had I think it was 1985 or six that I gave up dairy. Okay. And, and I, and I'll, I'll use a little dairy today, but, but I mostly because it, you know, it, it bothered me from a, uh, 
a respiratory standpoint. I noticed, you know, I was, I was more impaired with my asthma if I was using dairy. And so I started supplementing with soy milk. Yeah. This is way beyond the years of, you know, being able to go to a store and get almond milk or, yeah. you know, coconut milk or any other, you know, type of uh, alternative milk product. And, and so I had consumed a lot of soy milk and I had read, I remember reading this article about uh, soy. And so the, the, the way this article was positioned was that, you know, the benefits to soy for uh, women and the fact that, uh, you know, if you look at the Japanese culture, they don't have, you know, they don't suffer with, with uh, menopause like, you know, they might hear in, in, in the Western Civ. So um, I think to your point, I've read some of the hocus pocus about that as well. So, yeah. I, so what I'm hearing you say is that uh, it, it's, it's less about soy as a uh, food product and maybe more about soy as how it's processed and what the rest of the diet looks like as to whether or not it's adverse. Perfect. Yep. Okay. Got it. Yep. All right. Thanks for clarifying. So um, I don't, I don't use soy milk anymore. <laughs> it's been a bunch of years. Um, but, but I, I know it could be problematic for, uh, for a lot of people, uh, even, you know, potentially allergenic for, for some folks. But, um, and there's, there's certainly a big push, uh, not just in, um, you know, in the general population, but even in the in, in endurance athlete world today are plant, plant-based uh, diets. And, and, uh, and there, there are a lot of, you know, high profile professionals that are really pushing them. Yeah. And, and I think people are, are led in that direction sometimes for the reason that you mentioned before that, you know, from the, just the, uh, the objection to, to eating anything that's animal based. Um, but uh, your advice to someone who is not opposed to eating animals, but wants to pursue a plant-based diet for performance purposes, your advice would be what? Yeah, not to be too pigeonholed and just remember that there, there's a lot of options when it comes to plant-based, right? Which I think that term is so murky, right? Because what, if we're I, although you put it in context a bit, right? Someone who's more plant leaning, right? They're not exclusive. <laughs> Is that kind of what you're saying? Like a little bit of animal protein here and there. Well, no, it's, it's somebody's not, um, if, if they don't have the, if they don't have the uh, moral uh, challenge, if you will, of, of eating uh, animals, products, but want to pursue a plant-based diet for performance purposes, thinking or making mm -hmm. the assumption that there, there's better performance, it's a cleaner way of, of yeah. living or eating. What, what's your- Got it, got it. Yeah, well, today we don't have a study for anyone who's science-y, like, ooh, if the research is there, then I'll go for it. But right now we don't have a study that says um, vegetarian style, eating is superior to omnivorous patterns. But we do have some evidence to show that more plant-focused eating, even if that means you still have some other animal proteins, but it's just a nice array of a you know, variety of vegetables and fruits and nuts and seeds and beans and all that. 
um, there are definitely showing some benefits to that. It's just that there's nothing that says it's superior right now, as much as, you know, books and Hollywood wants to say that you'll, you'll be better than the others. Um, that's been inflated and sensationalized. Um, and they've cherry picked some of the little bit of science that there is on one, one aspect. Sure. Um, but so yeah, you can still be a, you know, a high performer eating more vegetarian, but it's not to say that you can't be a high performer eating some animal protein. So if you're <clears throat> wanting to do that for, uh, performance reasons, we just want to make sure that again, all the ducks are in a row, right? That we're not missing out on any of the micronutrients. Um, we're not missing out on uh, the protein that you may need, depending on the kind of athlete that you are, what your training schedule looks like. So just, you know, it's just some careful consideration and assessment and the monitoring that needs to happen to ensure you're on a good track. Yeah. Great stuff, Dina. I, I also want to let the folks know because I, I follow your um, your Instagram post and and, uh, and and your other um, social media posts, uh, and often you are sharing uh, uh, different recipes and 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 meals and and I love the the colorful palettes that <laughs> are always displayed. So I would highly encourage anybody because. Uh, uh, you know, they, you, you give great insight uh, and, and offer up some simple, uh, you know, recipes, nutritional uh, recipes that, you know, that folks can use that are, that are not far out and, um, and, uh, and necessarily, um, uh, you know, fad-based, you know, kind of concepts. So let the folks know if you would, where they can get or where you would like them to go to, to find more information that you might be able to share with them. Well, thank you. This has been fun, Sam. I mean, my websites, as you mentioned earlier, nutritionmechanic.com is great. And I do um, a newsletter once or twice a month, trying to be consistent with twice a month, but it's not an overwhelming thing. And I don't sell products or supplements or any of that. So it's more sharing uh, recipes or helpful tips, uh, athlete focused or active focused. And then uh, if you're on Instagram, Nutrition Mechanic is my handle over there. Uh, and then Facebook is uh, Mechanic Dina, I think okay. that's the name. I could put it in the link and-, and for Thank you though. They're looking, yeah, no, I, uh, you know, you've been my go-to for, you know, for quite some time and I think folks uh, you certainly appreciate your your skill set and expertise that you bring, and and I and I I'd really like to make a recommendation to those that uh, know and, and and follow me in the NCD thing that um, if 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 you're really looking to make a difference in your performance, I hope that what you know people will get out of this conversation certainly it's resonated deeply with me is that uh, just like anything else. You, you can't put all of your focus just into your training and not pay attention to, to how, you're, how you're performing or even what your baselines look like from a, a nutritional level. So uh, reach out to Dina, guys, if, if, if you have some questions 
And uh, and you've got a you've got a partner now too at the nutrition mechanic as well, don't you? I do. Yes, Kristen Foreman is my colleague. So we've got two mechanics in the shop. Yeah, now. And I, I love the uh, and I love the name too, nutrition mechanic. So <laughs> I, I think folks get it. Speaks. Dina Griffin, thanks uh, very much for taking some time out and dispelling some of the myths and offering up some great insight to folks. I think, uh, uh, you know, they'll, like I mentioned, they'll all benefit from continuing to follow and, and perhaps even reaching out to you, but, but I'm always very grateful. Uh, and I uh, wanna wish you a happy new year. Thanks for, for joining us here today. Thank you, Sam. Thanks for all you do too. Really appreciate it. Yeah, pleasure. Dina Griffin, thank you.